thank you very much, uh, Sally. Thank you very much, uh, Derek, as well, for, for leading for us. And uh, what a doozy of a passage we have this morning. <laughs> okay, it's, it's at times like these where I, uh, I wish I hadn't delegated to Cheeks the, uh, the, the act of actually putting our service plan together. And it's interesting that he's away for these two weeks. And now I can see why. Um, these passages are... Odd and they sound strange to our ears, but actually there is a theme through it. You'll be happy to know. I've wrestled with this passage a lot. I've sat in, in, in a lot of people's commentaries and I've listened to a lot of preachers on this just to try and find the right line to make sure that I'm not complicating it. And I hope this morning uh, we get a good uh, fist of what's uh, going on uh, um, here. It is quite something. It sounds like uh, the preacher sort of fallen out with his girlfriend by the end of it. But um, 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 you'll be happy to know um, um, it is uh, not complicated as we might seem. It's also not as sexist as it might appear. And we're going to go through all of that uh, together this morning. Before we do that, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you and praise you for the fact and the truth that all of Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by the Spirit, and is useful for us in every single way, for all our godliness, for rebuking us, training us, correcting us in righteousness, and, and, and spurring us on our way. Father God, we pray that we would very much feel that this morning, that we would enjoy the truths of the gospel, for it is just simply the gospel we're looking at this morning, and that it would charge our hearts, and that we would go away from here uh, more in love with the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, please do have that passage open in front of you. It'll be enormously helpful um, um, as you do. Uh, Cheeks said last week as he began this next section of Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 5, that Ecclesiastes is a book that continues to push buttons in our lives that we really don't want to have pushed. And I think that's a great way of putting it. That is absolutely what we see here in our passage today. The last uh, week, the button was money that was pushed and the uncomfortable uh, and wise truth that chasing after money for satisfaction is like chasing after the wind. It doesn't last. You can't take it with you. It doesn't bring joy. It's desperately elusive. And that truth makes us squirm because we're very comfortable in our money-orientated culture. We, we almost don't believe that to be true. We know it to be true, but we don't, we don't believe it. We fight against it. Well, likewise, in today's passage, we have other areas of life that are presented to us by the preacher that we're just not comfortable with talking about, I think, as a society. And I'm convinced, again, by sitting in this passage with, with a lot more intelligent people than I, that uh, despite this passage seeming quite higgledy-piggledy, there is a thread that sort of runs all the way through it. And that thread is to live life wisely. In order to live life wisely, you have to confront your limitations. Limitations that have been placed on us by God. And that's what this passage starts with in, in, in uh, verse 10 of chapter 6. That's the introduction for these uh, verses in chapter 7. Just read those with me. Whoever, whatever, has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is it the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You see, broadly, whatever exists, says the preacher, has already been named. Whatever humanity is has already been set and established by God. And man knows that, actually, in his heart of hearts, says the preacher. We know what our limitations are, and he or she cannot exceed what we are. The more words, that's just vanity. What advantage is that to the human? None, he says. Because we're all naturally limited. There are things that we cannot do and we cannot fight. There are things that we cannot add to ourselves, no matter how hard we try. 
And that is exactly where we are this morning, looking at these limitations that have been placed on us by God, things that we are not able to dispute with someone stronger than us, namely God, I think he means here. Limitations, natural laws that we have to abide by as humans. Uh, And I am persuaded that um, in chapter 7 that there are three kinds of limitations, I think, that we see that we have been given to as humans to contend with in this fleeting life which really frustrate us and maybe even scare us. But that, according to the preacher, ultimately help us in living our life well, living our life wisely in the light of them. And these three limitations are in order. Death, our general weaknesses, and our unrighteousness or our imperfection. And as a secular society, none of these things are things that we like to talk about. All of them make us squirm. All of them remind us of our frailty. And all of them are things we try and avoid thinking about or spend a lot of money on to overcome, especially, I think, in the area of death. And that's where the preacher starts in uh, uh, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7. Just read those verses again with me. A good name, he says, is better than precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of birth, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart is, the, is wise in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise man than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Now, this brings us to our first point of three this morning. The preacher is saying here to us that it is, in fact, in, our, in facing our death that leads us to real wisdom in life. Facing the ultimate limitation of our death, says the preacher, leads us to living this side of death wisely. Now, it was said of the Victorians that they were a people who were obsessed with death and embarrassed by sex. And that seems to be true. The Victorians were morbidly interested in death. It was during this time in British history where the great state occasions of famous people dying was born. Uh, Families would have photographs taken of themselves with their dead loved ones propped up next to them. Uh, A whole genre of poetry and novels was invented just to deal with death. It was a a morbid time to be alive for for all kinds of reasons, partly because child mortality rates were so high and technological advance opened the world up to give people a glimpse of what they were missing out on in death. Death was voyeuristically obsessed with in Victorian Britain, whereas sex was an embarrassment, never to be spoken of subjects. Whereas now... It is said, isn't it, that we live in an age that is absolutely the other way around. We are a society that is embarrassed by death and we are obsessed with sex. The uh, latter doesn't need spinning out here. We know that's true. In a society which is flagrantly sexualized, now reaping a whirlwind of confusion and agony and pain because of it, we cannot stop messing about with sex or gender. We are obsessed with it. But have you noticed how embarrassed we are by death? I've been at two funerals over the past two weeks. A dear old lady, who many of us knew at Chalmers Church, and my grandmother's uh, on Monday passed. And at the funeral of a believer, as both these women were, there's a real honesty about death. At my grandmother's funeral, I preached on John 11, where 
Jesus meets anxious Martha at the tomb of her brother and he cries over death. He mourns his friend Lazarus. It's a serious thing. He weeps at what defeating death is going to cost him later on the cross. And then he raises Lazarus. He's, he's proving what he will do in the believer. But, but, but death is really serious. And at the funeral of a non-believer, the most popular song that is played is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. And the most popular poem read is entitled, Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep. I Have Not Died. It's quite interesting, isn't it? These are some of the words from that poem. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glint on snow. I'm the sunlight and ripened grain. I'm the gentle autumn rain, etc., etc., etc. It's just vacuous and escapist. We'd rather not think about death or someone dying, not being alive anymore. The language in our society is very much all wrapped up in them being in the next room or continuing on in your loved ones or somewhere up in the sky watching down on us, etc., etc. We don't want to think about it. And, and, and we try not to think about it, and so in the West we'll do anything to try and either distract ourselves from it or try and beat it. The amount of money we spend on medicines and fitness regimes or for the exceedingly wealthy on technology to keep us alive forever. In a newspaper the other day, there was an article on the, last, the latest gene technology, which is said to reverse aging. As one person in the article said, and I quote, it won't be long with biotechnology moving as it is that we will begin to start living for centuries, if not forever. Well, the Bible says, all the way through the Bible, since the fall of man, that is just not possible. The preacher here in chapter 6, verse 10, says you can't get over this limitation placed on humanity. Whatever has come has already been named, and man knows what it is. Man is mortal. That's what man is. You can't dispute the reality of death's limitation over you. One in one people die, and it will always be so. You see, the point of the passage is to be somewhere between uh, where the Victorians were and where we are today, to see the day of your death healthily as an unchangeable limitation placed on your life, to see it as a healthy wake-up call to how you should live your life now. And these verses are weird to our ears, aren't they? In chapter 7, it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of joy, really. It's better to be standing over a coffin than at a dinner party, really. It's better to think on your deathbed than it is to celebrate your birthday, really. Well, yes, really, says the preacher. It just is. Because death is a better teacher of life and wisdom than life is, and more than birth is. The, the preacher isn't saying um, uh, that, that the funeral home is a happier place than a, than a maternity ward. He's not saying that. He's just saying that if you want to be wise in your life, don't look back to your birthday. That's not going to help. Looking back at what could have been, look forward to your death day, at what certainly will be. And tell yourself, I am going to die so what's the best way I can live my life now, you see? The, the coughing forces you to confront reality. A party doesn't. As I spoke over my grandmother's coffin on Monday, pointing at it, I said, one day that will be me. And one day I said, that will be you. And what will be said about me? What will everyone say about me at my funeral? I once said over me what I was able to say of a grandma as she died in the Lord Jesus and was filled with hope. What will my life show in terms of having lived life wisely under a creator God that we, that we see in Ecclesiastes who's created us with our limitations as we learn to live well in our fleeting lives? 
being, verse 1, the name that is associated with good wisdom rather than someone who was known for smelling good and looking good in life. That's why the preacher can say, verse 4, the heart of the wise inhabits that space of mourning. Living well, realizing that's coming. The heart of the fool doesn't want there, just laughing his life away. Pleasuring myself, drinking myself away, only living in the moment, trying to make it all go away. Forget about it. Which is what he says in verse 5, actually. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. In other words, it's better for us to hear the warnings of what is real in life and, and the limitations that are over us than it is just singing and whistling life away. It's foolish. Wisdom is about embracing what's real, not what we wish. This kind of raucous escapist living is, verse 6, like the crackling of thorns under a pot, just dead noise. That's what that means. That's the laughter of fools. It's vanity. No, says the preacher, facing your ultimate limitation of death helps you live wisely in life. And in the whole scheme of the Bible, we know what that looks like. We know what the answer is to the question that the preacher asks in chapter 6, verse 12. What does he ask rhetorically? For, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Well, we know that the only answer to that person is God. God can tell man. God is the only person who can tell man. We know, don't we, what the preacher doesn't quite know in that the answer is actually Jesus. Jesus knows what will happen after man. It is Jesus who stands at the, the tomb of death and weeps over it and does something about it. It is Jesus who goes to the cross and the grave and raises from the dead. He is the one that is able to tell us what happens after death. He is the one that I want to look at and face and deal with and, 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 and live under as I face my deathbed. Facing your death leads to real wisdom in life now. Living for Jesus in this life gives you lasting eternal significance, honor and joy and hope on your deathbed. Uh, which people will say of your coffin, he loved Jesus, she lived for Jesus. What, what he did was significant in this fleeting life for Jesus. Having viewed her death well through Jesus, goodness, did she live wisely. And that brings us to our second limitation, where the preacher now brings us into what living wisely in this life before death actually looks like. Where point two, facing our weaknesses, leads to real wisdom in hardship and temptation. And I think what, what joins all these seemingly independent proverbs together from verses 7 to 14 it, it is the fact that we are limited by our weakness and these things are going to come out when we face temptation and hardship, when we feel out of control and we're going to try and act foolishly to try and bring them back under our control. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 7 to 10, they reveal different kinds of temptations that we'll experience in life. Uh, verse 7, for example, reveals the temptation of extortion in the time of oppression and poverty. Verse 8 reveals the temptation of acting impatiently and impulsively in the time of frustration, where things aren't happening as fast as we want them to. Verse 9 reveals the temptation of anger in the times where people are working against you. Verse 10 reveals the temptation of misguided nostalgia in the times where we sort of think in the modern life, everything's terrible, it's beyond redemption, I want to wistfully hark back to the good old days. And I'm just going to... I'm just going to spend all my time thinking about them. You see, says the preacher, when difficult times come, when you're facing poverty or frustration or angry people, when you come up against these elements of just things that happen in real life, your weaknesses, don't try and take them under your control. Don't act 
rashly or foolishly to try and bend them to your will. The wise person will know that he is limited and he, can, and he can't change some of these circumstances, at least not quickly, sometimes not at all. So in times of oppression and poverty, verse 7, don't change your circumstances by theft and bribery. <laughs> Even the wise, it says, are driven mad by unfair poverty. Don't fall for the quick fix. Oppression, as we've seen in Ecclesiastes all the way through, is a normal part of a fallen world. Don't try and fix it foolishly. Don't grasp for more. Likewise, verse 8, remember that when things are not moving as fast as you like, that actually the end of the thing is better than beginning. But be patient. There are some things that you cannot speed up, whether it's bureaucracy or, 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 or justice or, or time itself. You are limited. You are weak in these areas. Accept that. Don't let your life be governed by frustrated impatience. Know, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, that God has ordained everything in its time. That leads on to verse 9, quite naturally. Impatience leads to anger. Dealing with difficult people leads to anger. It's just a reality that you'll be dealing with difficult people. That's part of the fallen world. Again, don't let your heart be taken over by anger. Don't try and outdo them by hating them back. Living life worrying about what people think of you. Seeking for vindication all the time personally with people around you. Don't do that. And verse 10, I think this is a good one. Don't, don't live wistfully whiling your life away, having given up on the hardships of the world in your time, just yearning for the past. Oh, we hear it all the time. Oh, those are the good old days. Things were so much better back then. Things were so much better in our day. All is lost now. What's the point? We've hit the point of no return, etc., etc., etc. As someone said to me this week, in the midst of everything that's going on in Scotland, he said, ah, we'll, we'll never have days like we used to have, the glory days of Scotland. I yearn to be there. Don't live like that. Uh, escaping reality. That's escaping reality, says the preacher. And often it's just not true, is it? So the, the days in the past were often as dreadful uh, and, and in different ways as they are now. And every generation has wanted to look back to the past. So that must be true. Don't live like that. Work hard at dealing with your life in your days and the times that have been given to you. Don't look to the past. That, that's lazy and reductive. Makes you sidestep the issues that you need to work on now. And as a Christian, it leads to denying the work of Jesus in our times, doesn't it? We sort of see God as only the God of the past. He, he was great back then. It's, it's a shame that he's asleep now. Notice as a preacher, all these things, except that you are weak and fragile and limited, and these weaknesses will be evident in all of us in big or small ways as we come up against hardship and temptation in the world. Remember, you cannot earn enough. You cannot speed up time enough. You cannot be at peace with everyone all the time. You cannot work every situation out to your will. And, and that's okay. We're in a fallen and weak people who have little control over things, and that's okay. Knowing these things are true in a fallen life means you'll be prepared for them. Living, facing our weaknesses means that you'll be living life wisely as you accept them. That's what verse 11 and 12 is about. Wisdom is good with inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom pr preserves the life of him who has it. In other words, all the preacher is saying here is living wisely in these areas of our weaknesses and limitations, as hard as it is, because we automatically want to have more. It's easier to be impatient. We like getting angry. We do yearn for yesteryear. 
But working wisely against all this is like putting money towards an inheritance that you will receive, he says. Working something tangible in the future. Furthermore, wisdom in these areas is, like, is as advantageous to us as the sun is, giving us light and goodness and health and making us grow. Wisdom is like the shelter that, that money offers, except it's better than money, uh, under the knowledge of a holy, eternal God, as we've seen from looking at our death in Jesus. Our, our lives will be preserved by this kind of wisdom that protects us. Indeed, as the preacher sums up this middle section, he does so, reminding us just where these weaknesses and limitations come from and how futile it is to try and fight them. Verse 13, consider, he ends, the work of God... Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God has limited you, human. Because of the fall, he's made our lives crooked and weak. We live in a world that is rampant with wanting to change what is fixed. With wanting to undo our weaknesses, we are a desperately frustrated and deeply impatient society. And we are so, so angry... We want to change what cannot be changed, our genders, our ages, our circumstances, our race even. And we are so, so angry when that cannot happen. And we hate people who disagree with us. We despise the lot that we have been given in our lives as a society. We are desperately discontent. And the lie of the world is that you can be anything and you can do anything that you want to. And nothing is going to stand in your way. And you can change in any way you wish and overcome anything you want. And all you need to do is fight for it with everything you have and never give up, even if it means crushing people to get there, even to the loss of all logic or scientific reality or truth or integrity or sensibility. It's insane. It's simply not true, says the preacher. You, you simply cannot live that way. It is absolutely foolish. It, it will end you. You'll become ever more frustrated and angry and impatient and hateful because you will keep smashing into reality. A reality that I have set, says the creator God, that no one can undo or change. That crooked path that no one can straighten. That's the age that we live in. The age of Ecclesiastes 7, 7 to 14. Our, our age is an extreme of what living foolishly in this area looks like. As Christians, we have to be good at exampling simple, circumspect, wise life. Where we are okay with what we have. Where we are okay with what we cannot change. Where we are, uh, are okay with what God has given us in our time. We are okay with being weak. Living, waiting for our death day. Until we can redeem this wisdom-induced inheritance and we are raised with Christ to God who has set eternity in the hearts of men. And that links us nicely into our third point this morning. Our last limitation is that we are to live in the light of is that facing our unrighteousness, our imperfection, leads to wisdom in living for God in this life. Just read with me verses 15 to 18, which frames this very well. In my vain life, I've seen everything, says the preacher. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. In short, very simply, the preacher says, don't try and be righteous in order to prolong your life. 
As you exist in and begin to work out your human frailties and your weakness and your natural limitations and your death, don't try and become perfect. This is the opposite of verses 7 to 14, isn't it? To try and outdo your limitations and your death. It's just not a thing. It doesn't work, says the preacher. Um, and, and, he, and he says, doesn't he, verse 15, I've seen this, genuinely righteous people perish before their time and genuinely wicked people live long and happy lives. So, so trying to be perfect doesn't seem to have a bearing on the times that we live in terms of trying to beat death or get over our weaknesses and our limitations. So don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked either, says the preacher. In other words, just don't be something that you're not. And the one thing you are not is perfect enough to outgrow these human limitations. That's a warning against the kind of thinking that is prevalent in the world that says, if I'm a better person, if I just treat people well, I'll live longer in life. If I'm nice to people and allow them to be who they want to be, then it will go well for me. Uh, someone said uh, to my mum at my grandma's funeral, well, death is quite the thing, isn't it? That's what she said. Uh, 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 yes. Uh, and then she said, and I'm doing my best, and I'm working hard, and at the end of the day, that's what matters. No, it isn't. <laughs> says the preacher. It really isn't. But it's just not in the world we see this thinking. It's also true for the Christian. There has always been a desire in parts of the church since the New Testament to be able to achieve super holiness for a sort of higher spiritual enlightenment, which gives us a better view this side of death, a better life this side of death. At the Chalmers Student Weekend Away, I was speaking out two weekends ago, I was teaching through Colossians. And that's a book written to a church that is being tempted to be super spiritual beyond what Jesus offers, to be better, to prolong their lives. Uh, Colossians 3.20, we read these words. If with Christ you had died to the elemental spirits, spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to all things that are perished when they use, according to human precepts and teachings. Then he says, these things, these extra spiritual rules have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value of stopping the indulgence or the weaknesses of the flesh. It's amazing, isn't it? It's just Ecclesiastes 7. In other words, says Paul, don't fall for rules with severity that have no substance, religion with spirituality that doesn't sustain you. Don't fall for that way of thinking. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they're foolish. Trust in Christ, in the God who has created you, who, at the end of chapter 6, knows your futures, who's going to secure you and keep you safe, regardless of how long or short your lives is. That's how you live. In this regard, verse 20 is so important, isn't it? Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's almost word for word what we read in the New Testament. He who says he is without sin is a liar. Don't be who you're not. Now, the preacher says you also don't want to go too far and abandon all godliness and just live hedonistically. That really can end your life early, he says. And it goes against the call to living wisely that we've looked at. But you cannot escape this life and its hardships by striving to be perfect. Don't attempt to live supremely piously. For verse 16, it'll destroy you living for what you cannot attain. It'll drive you mad and it will fail. Now, as we close... What does not living right, overly righteously look like? What does living wisely, understanding this limitation that we are all unrighteous, looks like? Well, it, it's framed in verse 21. Knowing that you are imperfect, says the preacher, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows many times that you have cursed others. It's brilliant, isn't it? In other words, 
Don't demand, don't demand a higher righteousness from someone that you cannot and will not achieve in yourself. You, you sort of got to live with each other knowing that we're all unrighteous and cut each other some slack. Verse 21 is a great example. It's something we've all done. Let's just get off our high horses for a moment, says the preacher. When we hear people talking about us, because we've done it in private to them as well, things that might actually be true, that people need to be talking about us, and that we might need to be talking about others. But if they'd heard you, they'd also be upset. You see, get off your high horse for a moment. None of you is perfect. Stop pretending to be. Stop expecting others to be. Stop flouncing around, being shocked and mortified when you've been wronged. Again, Jesus picks this up in the New Testament. He says, take the whopping great big plank out of your own eye before you cry shock and horror at the speck in your brother's eye. Again, it doesn't mean we should be gossiping with impunity, expecting others just to hack it because I'm not perfect. No, verse 17, don't be overly wicked. Gossip is wrong. It hurts tremendously. But let's be real with each other. And real before God who is perfect. We're not perfect. Accept that. Accept that in love with each other. We're all rotten, fallen people knocking each other out with our planks in our eyes. Desperately trying to work out how I take them out with you and me. Between us in loving harmony, in church family. It's beautiful. Accept your limitations as deeply imperfect and righteous people who, in the light of the Bible, are saved by grace alone. You are all incredible works in progress. Some of us are a lot more works in progress than others. And that's where the preacher begins to round all this off in verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. He said, I will be wise, but it's far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find out? I've tried it, in other words. It's another one of my experiments. To be super righteous or super wise, I can't get there. Who can find out what has been, let alone what will come? It's very deep. I don't understand it. I'm so limited. I'm so limited in all these areas. And knowing that helps me live well, especially as I view my life through the cross of Christ, who makes me perfect. And as we come to these last truly weird verses, we see that actually all that's going on here, that this bizarre bit that I feel I need to touch on because you'll all ask me about it afterwards. Uh, all he's saying here is, look... I have searched the earth, every man and woman, for someone that I can point to, says the preacher. This is from verse 25. There is someone who lives rightly, and, or who I totally understand. Someone that I have found out. So that's actually the Hebrew word of this. I figured out someone, and there they are. He or she is the person that I want to follow. I get them, I understand them. In that person is wisdom or a right sense of uprightness. Now, how does he do that? This is where verse 28 comes in. Um, he says, I found one man in all my searching and no women. Now, let me explain that before we go. Bear with me. Verse 25 explains his experiment. I turned my heart to know and to search out, to seek wisdom, the scheme of things, to know the wickedness and folly of the foolishness that is madness. So I've gone looking into the world to, to, to find this out. And then verse 26, he seems to interrupt himself. He says, in his search among humanity, watch out, guys, the woman who ensnares you. He, he's talking more about sexual temptation in our limitations rather than about sinful women. That's what he's declaring as he's going through this. And then he says this, verse 27, he declares his findings of his search of humanity. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, this isn't sexist. It is hyperbolic. 
The Hebrew word hidden in these verses is figured out, strive to understand. In fact, he's saying, I've looked at all the guys around me, I don't know, my pals, his mates, his brothers, whatever. He's saying, there is only one of all of these thousands of men I know who I've actually figured out. <laughs> As in, there's only one I actually get who I sort of understand, who sort of imagines how, I, how life should be lived. Uh, and the others, they're all a total enigma to me. I cannot figure them out. As for women, <laughs> I, I, I can't figure them out at all. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's what he's saying here, sort of. I just, don't, I just don't get it. I don't get anyone. In short, says the preacher, in my searching for someone who I understand, one out of 2,000 people, I might have found one. It's hyperbole. In other words, in his search for someone who is upright or who lives sensibly, he comes to the conclusion that he doesn't really understand anyone. He is so limited, even in his understanding of the people around him. Can you see? And we're like that in our church family, aren't we? We can't figure each other out. Sometimes we sort of look at each other and go, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I do not get to you at all. As in, we are on completely different political ends of the spectrum. I don't understand how you function. That's crazy. And we're like that in our normal church families. We're baffling to each other. I remember chatting to a dad I know well on the way back from school, and he said to me of his son, he said, Sam, honestly, I do not get my son at all. He is an enigma to me. I can't believe he's mine. We are so different. It would be hilarious if it wasn't so disturbing. Well, here the preacher's saying, I'm trying to just figure out men and women. If, if there's a physical human trait, maybe a righteous link that joins us all together, that, that I can point at and go, aha, yeah, there is something that joins us all together that we can all work on. That, that's where humanity can meet on the same level as each other. And he says, I just can't. I, I can't find it. Well, there's one, perhaps, Jimmy, over the road. He and I see eye to eye on everything. But the rest, I'm absolutely baffled. And can you see how this ties into everything that we've looked at this morning? If we are this different to each other on normal life issues, what on earth does that look like for our godliness and our righteousness? You see, the conclusion to the preacher's bafflement with other humans is the conclusion of the whole passage. And it's found in verse 29, so then concludes the preacher, this alone have I found, that God made man upright, even though they have sought out many schemes. You see, we are so different. We are involved in such different schemes and ideas and philosophies in life. It can only be that if there is anything, any righteousness, any uprightness that somehow makes us all okay with God, it cannot be something that comes from us. It has to be something from beyond us. And that is God. My conclusion has to be that righteousness comes to uniquely imperfect people through the uniquely perfect God. That is... True wisdom, says the preacher. The knowledge that we are saved by an unimaginable grace, by an independent righteousness, an independent uprightness that comes from beyond ourselves, that makes with us right with God uh, and, and, and righteous with God, despite me and the stupid positions I hold on ridiculous things, despite you and the weird things that you do that make no sense to me. God alone has made me upright. God alone has brought perfection into his world. God alone is the motivation for me to live for him in this hard, tempting, fleeting life that will eventually end in death, you see? Facing my, my unrighteousness leads me to leaning on the perfect God who makes me righteous despite myself. 
and able to live imperfectly but sincerely for him and increasingly living a life of wisdom, of godliness in him. Ecclesiastes does seem hard, but it is simply just the gospel. Nothing more and nothing less. Facing our death leads to real wisdom in life as we think about how we would want to die and what we would want to have said over our funeral. That means we will lead to wisdom in our lives now as we change our lives to live that way. And, and that changed life means facing our limitations. Owning up to what we cannot physically achieve or change under a sovereign God who alone holds all things together. Leading to wisdom in dealing with hardship and temptation as we suffer and live well. As we accept graciously the things I should not be fighting for or taking from others or lying to get or trying to shortcut. Or being constantly angry. And we only really get there by remembering that at the end of the day, we are all imperfect sinners and able to reach any kind of goodness that will make us better or increase our days, but that God alone has made us perfect. God alone is the link that joins this church family together. There is actually not much else. And that God alone will work in us through his spirit to make us more like him. That God alone will say when our time on earth is done, and God alone will bring us back to our real home with Jesus, his son, in his eternity. Well, let me pray um, as we close. Father God, thank you so much uh, for this time this morning. Thank you for these passages in Ecclesiastes. Thank you for, for, for the joy just to be able to wrestle with them and break them open and, and see the beauty of the gospel hidden inside them. Thank you for the wisdom that it holds. Help us, Heavenly Father, above all, to be living life knowing that we are going to die, to be living life wisely under the Lord Jesus, the, the Lord Jesus who knows the answers to all our questions and who's able to deal with all our frailties and imperfections, the, the one who made us righteous uh, through his blood on the cross and his resurrection. Help us to live life knowing all that is true, wanting to be more godly day by day, just making small progress with the Lord Jesus and with each other. And, 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 and help us to love each other more. Help us to be so patient with each other. Help us not be angry with each other. Help us to, to be able to accept each other in our imperfections as, as we strive to urge each other on to, to godliness and godly living and, and, and loving the Lord Jesus more. Father God, we pray all these things very much in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.